Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the third season of the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. I am Vlad, and my guest today is Jeremy. And Jeremy might have spoken in class today, like in that Pearl Jam song. <laughs> Did you speak in class today, Jeremy? Oh, my goodness. I uh, get that all the time. All the really? time. <laughs> That's the only Jeremy that I know because I'm from Romania. And it was a hit song around the time when I was born. I see. I see. Yes, that would make sense. And I don't know why that is, but sometimes we get fascinated by the stuff which was popular around the year when we were born. Yes. But you're much older than me and you're retired, right? That's right. Uh, 38, I live in Seaside, Oregon, and uh, spend my days alternating between uh, the beach and kayaking and playing around on Twitter and uh, trying to test out the latest Bitcoin software. Interesting. How does it all mix together? Like when you think of a retired lifestyle and you're going <laughs> to the beach and you're trying to relax, but at the same time, you're interested in the technology of the future. I, I see myself as a, uh, an amateur researcher uh, in, in, in the space broadly. Uh, I feel like I've been that way for uh, over 20 years. I've been excited and interested in uh, the concept of, of digital money. Uh, so it's uh, really just a, a lifelong passion for me. And it's uh, very rewarding to see all of the, the trends start to come together and uh, really see the applications uh, taking off. And uh, for the first time uh, in my lifetime, I feel like we'll be able to see uh, the culmination of, of all of this great work that's been done uh, over the last several decades. And uh, that's very exciting to me. Really? So when you mentioned that you have been interested for two decades, were you involved or did you own any DigiCash or eCash by no, no, David no, Chong? No, I, um, I first became uh, aware of the concept of digital currency um, when I was in the Army in uh, 1998. And it was, um, it was part of a, uh, a program that we were studying. Uh, there were some individuals who uh, had left the United States from Texas. Uh, they were expats, and they went to Costa Rica to create this um, this project they called the Digital Monetary Trust, uh, which if I were to describe it today, I would say it's something like uh, a proto-privacy coin based on a account model instead of a coin model. It was uh, designed to be wealth secured through cryptography. And uh, it was a, an interesting project and it opened my eyes at the time to uh, the possibilities of what a supranational uh, currency would, would look like and how it would function. Of course, it had uh, many, many shortcomings that wouldn't be uh, solved until uh, obviously uh, Satoshi released the, the white paper. But um, it was still a fascinating topic. And um, I, I watched with interest uh, many of the different projects uh, in the interim. But it wasn't really until um, after Bitcoin started to gain some traction that I made any sort of monetary position in the space. Interesting. I was not aware of this project. And usually when you study the history of digital money, 
especially the one which is cryptographically secure. Sure. You end up stumbling upon DigiCash and David Tom and his work. Sure. Of course, of course. In academia, yeah, this- but nothing relating to military stuff. Oh, no, no, it, it wasn't military. Um, uh, I, I was in the military. These guys were uh, completely, uh, they were very eccentric, let's put it that way. Um, the, the gentleman that was the driving force behind the project, his name was uh, Jay Orland Grab. He was an economist from Texas originally and uh, amateur uh, cryptographer. And he and uh, a few individuals got together and, and tried to create uh, a digital version of Sealand. And they uh, made uh, a long-term lease agreement with the, the government of uh, Costa Rica uh, for a plot of land where they could put some uh, computer servers and create this, uh, this, this digital community. Uh, they called it Laissez-Faire City. Um, it was uh, uh, truly an interesting place. Uh, it, it was um, it was like a, a bulletin board forum, and you would create an avatar and you would you would join the community. And it's you know it's funny uh, the conversations that would happen there are the, the the same kind of conversations that you you see today. There would there would be threads on eating meat and <laughs> Austrian economics, and uh, it's just really fascinating how some of those things repeat through history. But uh, at any rate, um, it, it, it started off as um, an attempt to find a way to, uh, to, to provide sovereign individuals with um, a, a way to, to store and use their wealth outside of the, the national communities. And uh, so it, it quickly devolved, however. Uh, I don't think that there was a lot of technical merit behind the, the cryptography being used. It, it never deployed successfully. Um, and it, it uh, quickly became a sort of a scam territory where uh, they were really just trying to raise money from uh, high net worth individuals around the world trying to escape taxes and, and whatnot. And that's why the, the military was, was interested in studying it. We had a uh, anti-money laundering and, and uh, counter drug beat throughout Central and South America. So that's how it kind of got on our radar screen. But uh, like I said, the, the project never really uh, took off, but just the, the sheer fact of its existence was uh, was fascinating to me, and uh, I've never really lost that fascination. So when Bitcoin came along, um, it was really like pulling together all of these threads that had been happening over the course of many years, and uh, just it, it got me very excited, and that's why I'm here today. So were you still in the military when you first heard about Bitcoin? Oh no no I, um, I I was discharged uh, uh, shortly thereafter um, and have been a civilian for uh, the last I don't know was it seventeen years or so. And how would you describe Bitcoin differently from that proto crypto project from the nineties? Well, uh, certainly they're the completely different structural arrangement. Uh, Obviously, the, the, the concept of uh, having a, a cryptographic token that is exchangeable was, was far different than um, what that project envisioned, which was basically just like a trust account uh, that was protected cryptographically. 
Um, so, so there are uh, obvious uh, structural differences. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, my, my exposure to it at the time uh, didn't go into uh, the, the deep technical details that was sort of uh, above my station at the time. Uh, I was more looking at it from a uh, uh, behavioral intelligence uh, point of view. Uh, and trying to understand the people involved and, and the dynamics socially uh, of the group. But um, in, in that way, it's actually quite similar. <laughs> so there, there are some uh, remarkable uh, trends, like I say, uh, that, that, that last beyond the years. That's fascinating. And I hope none of the information that you disclosed is classified and will get you into trouble. No, of course not. Uh, it, it was um, <clears throat> it was never uh, any sort of uh, uh, technical operation. It was more just gathering intelligence and, and trying to understand the, the world. And, and plus, it was 20 years ago. Right. So as somebody who has worked against projects that were trying to lend their money, how can you actually like Bitcoin? Because if you're malevolent, you can actually lend their money with Bitcoin. Oh, certainly. And... Um, I will say this, you know, my views about how the government should work have changed uh, drastically over the years. When I was uh, a young buck uh, at the time, you know, I had star-spangled eyes and I had this idea of the world as, um, you know, a, a place that could be uh, that could be led by a, a forward-thinking and, and uh, uh, just government and, and uh, uh, in, in many ways, I felt like that was uh, uh, the the only possibility was for the the United States government to to fill that role uh, as the sort of leading light of the world. And when I went into the military, I was able to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit and uh, understand the inertia of huge bureaucracies uh, to understand the the challenges. Uh, with executing, uh, you know, the Monroe Doctrine throughout the uh, the Americas and, and, and just sort of establishing, you know, uh, hegemonic power throughout the world. Uh, the, the, these were issues that uh, I hadn't considered fully uh, at the time, even though, you know, I, I was very much... Uh, uh, interested in the in the philosophy behind it as well. I mean, in high school, I read Human Action. I read uh, all of Ayn Rand. I read uh, all, all of these um, uh, these texts that, you know, circled around the, the core ideas. Um, but over the, the last two decades, my opinions have changed. And I, I certainly don't think that... Uh, uh, I don't think that there should be uh, the oversight between... Uh, government and, and currency. I think that uh, money and state should be separated. And uh, I see uh, Bitcoin as being uh, the only real capable tool that can accomplish that goal. Uh, and that's why I'm excited about it. So when was the first moment when you got involved into Bitcoin? Because I guess you hear about it on the news a lot. Sure. especially thanks to the Silk Road. But then you decide that you want to go full-time and research this after a while. And when was that moment? And I don't mean specifically the year or the month, but the oh, sure, event sure. that drew you into it. 
Yeah, no, it was, um, I, I, I'm happy to tell you, it, it was somewhere in uh, the latter part of 2012. I'm sure that I came across an article, uh, perhaps in Bloomberg or Fortune or some sort of uh, mainstream media uh, like that, uh, talking about Bitcoin and uh, recognized it for sort of what it was, not necessarily that I was able to pull together all the pieces. In fact, my, my learning journey around Bitcoin is still ongoing, and I, I suspect it will continue to, to develop uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but I, I heard about it then and, and uh, started doing my research. But, you know, when um, at the time, there weren't a lot of uh, really good options to sort of play around with it. You know, you still had uh, a world dominated by Mt. Gox and, and that whole situation. And it wasn't really until uh, Coinbase uh, started accepting uh, accounts that uh, I was able to set one up and and make my first transactions and, and really try to see what um, what the technology was all about. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I didn't see the possibilities uh, for being anywhere near uh, something that could be happening within a lifetime. Uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is fun, this is exciting, this is what it's supposed to be, but um, I had a lot of doubt about whether there would be adoption uh, of any significant amount, uh, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. Um, but I continued to play around with it. I um, <coughs> uh, was uh, at that point uh, an entrepreneur and I um, utilized uh, Stripe, had a plugin uh, that you could uh, put onto your website uh, that allowed you to accept uh, Bitcoin payments with, uh, uh, with Coinbase as the, sort of the, uh, the backer. And uh, by 2014, I was um, uh, accepting Bitcoin payments for, for businesses, uh, but I still had zero clue about the technology and why it worked and, and the how. Um, it wasn't until 15, 2015 or so um, that I ran a full node and uh, just barely started poking the software a little bit. And, you know, the, the story goes on uh, to 2017. I uh, liked it so much that I decided to open uh, Seaside Crypto was the, the little shop here uh, in Seaside that uh, is just a little trailer on the side of the road. And I put a Bitcoin sign on the side of it. And so people driving, uh, you know, up Highway 101 <laughs> coming into this little uh, little resort town, you know, see, see Bitcoin on the side of the road. And I'd get a lot of people that would just pull in and, and be very, very confused. And, and why are you here? And what is it that you're doing? And, and tell me a little bit more about it. And, and I had fun uh, with those conversations. Um, but it was, it was more of a novelty, I think. And within uh, the first year, uh, that sort of died off. People had gotten their, uh, their fill of uh, kicking the tires. And so I decided uh, that it didn't make sense to, to keep that going anymore. And uh, now I'm just uh, playing around with the, the newest releases of everything and, and trying to stay up to date as best I can. But I, I tell you, it's, uh, it feels like a full-time job. I don't feel retired at all. I know exactly what you're saying. I have to research the latest developments and I basically report stuff for a living. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it feels overwhelming, especially right now with Lightning. There are so many developers working on so many 
interesting projects that there is only so much you can read about at one time. Absolutely. I, uh, I absolutely feel that. And, you know, f for me and for my sanity, I've had to, I've really had to restrict it down to, let's say, uh, six, maybe seven software programs, right? Uh, obviously, there's, uh, you know, Bitcoin Core, which you, you, you've got to run, you've got to understand how that works. Um, if you are customer facing or public facing in any sort of way, any sort of business, you've got to do PTC pay server. Uh, so you've got to figure out how to, uh, you know, install that and uh, get it, get it going. Uh, another one would be Wasabi. Uh, you've got to understand how Wasabi wallet works, how CoinJoin works. Uh, I think BISC is a very important uh, software program as well uh, because for the, at least the next 10 years, you're going to need to have a way to, to, shift in and out of, uh, of fiat currencies. Um, obviously the lightning network, uh, as a, as a set of softwares, uh, is, is very, very important. Um, I have only really, uh, experienced, uh, C lightning and LND. Uh, I don't know much about, uh, uh, Eclair and, and, and whatnot, but, uh, I try to stay abreast of that. And obviously, uh, finally liquid, uh, liquid is, uh, something that has captured my attention. Uh, recently it's, uh, now easy enough that, uh, uh, a dummy like me can, uh, install it. And I even issued my first token, uh, the other day. I'm very proud about that. And I'm just now kind of, uh, you know, seeing in my own mind, the possibilities, uh, for that. Um, and, and I, I think with focusing on those those six uh, uh, core softwares, and uh, if you were to add another one, I would give a shout out to, to Samurai Wallet. Um, but um, if you were to take those those softwares uh, together, uh, I, I really do think you can make a um, uh, you, you can make a, a business structure that has all of the, the the benefits and the conveniences of a modern corporation. Um, and, and do it in a Bitcoin native way. Uh, you can add your uh, legacy payment system on top of that as a sort of afterthought uh, so that you can still deal with your local fiat currency. But if your software stack uh, comprises those, uh, those pieces of software, um, you, you can really make a go of the thing. Uh, and so my, my recent passion has just been trying to find the easiest way to get all of those softwares working on one cheap device uh, and, and, you know, where possible uh, uh, seeing what you can do to, to, to make the, 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 the user experience of using that uh, a little bit easier. Um, uh, but that's where, that's where my head's been at. And, and I have to leave it at that. I can't, I don't think I can take on another software program. <laughs> so if, if there's somebody out there with a new thing, uh, leave me out of it. I, I, I can't handle it. I, my brain doesn't have enough room. <laughs> well, at least you did not get into variation of the Bitcoin core client. Right. I, I know that people like Luke Dasher are running their own version. Yeah, knots and whatnot. Yeah. No, I, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, let, let me just have, you know, um, the, the plain vanilla deal and, and, and learn how to use that. I think that um, that's probably good enough advice for anybody is, you know, get a, get a comfort level with, with just the basics and, uh, you know, all of this other stuff. I, I honestly, I think the, the, the troubles and the, the, the technical difficulties will, will ultimately be abstracted away. And uh, the person who 
discovers Bitcoin for the first time 10 years from now is going to have so much of an easier time with the entire process that it, it will it will it won't even seem like the same technology you know uh, it, at least to my mind that's uh, that, that makes sense uh, they may have just one app that they put on their phone that does all of those things that I just talked about, you know, uh, who, who knows what comes, but uh, <clears throat> certainly uh, on the one hand, I'm jealous of them, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm happy uh, to, to be tinkering around with it and learning. And, and I think that part of it is fun as well, too. I think that all of us through our experiences are helping the development and helping the interfaces get better and friendlier. And it, right. it is through our demands that, this interface gets shaped conceptually because yeah. it's a new technology. We don't know really what we need and what we want. We know what, what would be cool to have, but we need to test these features before they actually have a commercial face, which allows anybody to just run an application on their phone and right. access all the functions. Also, we need to reach that kind of, legislative situation or agreement with the corporations that control our data that they do not ban all the Bitcoin and Lightning related applications from their app stores. Because we haven't seen the worst of it yet, but we can see how with other applications such as social media platform Gab, they keep on banning. And... Honestly, I mean, uh, not not to interrupt you, but I, I wish they would do that. Uh, I, I, I truly do. I, uh, I I know that that's a, a bit reactionary, and, and some of my uh, peer group in the community would would say, no, 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 don't invite that kind of uh, attention at this point. But uh, I, I do believe that it would push development to the edges uh, where. I think it needs to be if, if we had uh, a situation where we couldn't use uh, iOS or we couldn't use Android, uh, then who knows, maybe there would be a, a much stronger demand for technologies like the, the Librem phone um, or, uh, you know, versions of Ubuntu on, on mobile devices uh, that the people have been playing around with for, for a while. Um, uh, Linux on mobile uh, would be, um, uh, a, a really nice thing to, to have. And uh, if we push development in that area, I think we would ultimately uh, have a, a more stable foundation upon which to build. Because as long as we stay within the walled gardens of what Google or Apple says is okay, then we're always going to have a situation where we're, we're locked in a cage with a bear. Uh, and right now the bear doesn't seem to be doing anything, but who knows what happens in the future. Uh, so I'd, I'd rather get out of the cage early, but that's just me. And uh, I understand that might not be a, a popular viewpoint. I can imagine that some people will not like the idea of buying a separate device just to be able to use Bitcoin. They sure. will try to use it on their iPhones and they will be curious to play with the functions. And that's why we need this kind of balance because... Maybe in our case, we will be able to manage and use a different operating system and a different app store, which allows us to use our beloved technology. But if we want to really expand beyond this, objectively speaking, echo chamber, that <laughs> is the Bitcoin space, we need to make it accessible. And that's why I like people 
who make efforts like Piero Shard mm-hmm. with his node launcher. Yeah, of course, yes. Very, very it's exciting. It's so easy. You just double click and it's all there. Yeah. Well, it's, well, you know, it's, it's more difficult if you need to open ports and you need yeah, to access yeah. your router and then you have to contact your ISP probably to allow sure. you to open certain ports that allow you to run Lightning. But other than that, it's such a seamless experience. And, you know, for, for what it's worth, a, a lot of the software programs that I mentioned are that seamless today. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've played around with it, but for any of the audience that uh, uh, might haven't, you know, um, Wasabi, you know, you download a file and you double click it. Liquid uh, is not quite there. Uh, Lightning Network is with uh, the L&D desktop, desktop app. Uh, BISC is like that. You download a file, you double click it. I mean, I'm talking, uh, you know, Apple, uh, Microsoft, and, uh, and and Linux environments, you know. So, um, and and the ones like, you know, Liquid and, and Bitcoin Core, uh, it, it's it's literally, you know, a couple of uh, commands that you put into the terminal. So I, I do appreciate the fact that the moment you say terminal or, or command line interface, uh, people start to have their eyes glaze over, uh, but it really isn't as intimidating as uh, a lot of people think. And uh, I know this just from having people come into the shop or uh, people that I've met through social media here locally in the Oregon community that have said, okay, I'm, I'm excited. I want to, I want to do this, but I have no idea where to start. And I, I say, Hey, you know, go get a cheap laptop and, and meet me at Starbucks and, and we'll have you going in a couple of minutes. And when they see the process in, in front of them, I don't think it's nearly as intimidating as, as they expected in almost every circumstance. So I, I think we've come a long way is, is what I'm saying. And yes, there is, uh, there's, there's more room to grow. And, and yes, you want to have uh, grandma uh, be able to, to, to use Bitcoin super easy too. Uh, I, I do understand that as well, but, um, but I don't think it's as bad as uh, a lot of people fear. You know, they just, you have to get outside of your comfort zone a little bit, try something new, uh, try putting, uh, Ubuntu on your old computer and just playing around with it, uh, you'd be surprised. I remember the first time I tried Wasabi, I was so shocked because beyond the CoinJoin function, it's such a great wallet. It's yes. everything that a wallet should be. It has all the yeah. functions. It's intuitive. It even has that bar which allows you to set fees without typing anything. Right. I mean, every wallet should have that. Why could they, yeah. could they yeah. not figure that out? It's so obvious. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing that appeals the most to me about Wasabi is the ease with which you can do uh, coin control. Um, and so many other mobile wallets have, have really fallen behind uh, in, in that regard. Uh, a notable shout-out also to, to Samurai, who lets you do that and, and label uh, transaction outputs and, and, and all those things as well uh, in a similar fashion to what happens in uh, the core client. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess it's really just a matter of uh, this still being the wild west of the, the development world. You know, you've got uh, these innovative uh, young people like uh, Adam, uh, you know, and uh, with Wasabi and, uh, you know, they're, they're putting out these features that are cool as hell. And they are going to catch on. And, and that's why I say, you know, five years, 10 years from now, <laughs> you're going to have, you know, an app that you put on your phone and it does everything. And it does, it has all of these features. And uh, we're just in that migrating experience right now. So, yeah. 
We just have to think that about nine years ago, Healthini launched a bounty <laughs> program. Yeah, that was before my time. Basically, encourage people to create their own wallet to withdraw yeah. a certain amount of bitcoins, which he said as a bounty. And I think it was Mike Hearn who won it, who at the time was an engineer at Google. Mm-hmm. It was also the way through which Peter Willey got involved in Bitcoin. And now he's the most prominent developer. Yeah, a lot of a lot of really smart guys out there. Uh, it's uh, it's it's nice to see the 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 brightest people on the planet looking around and deciding, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And and so many of them are choosing, uh, choosing the world of of cryptography, but more specifically Bitcoin. And that's um, it, uh, it's very encouraging to see. You have been around the space since you said 2013. Yeah. What did you think about the scaling debate? Because it it was such a huge topic. It divided the community in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. It was feeling like it's not the same. We're not as united as we used to. It was, I, I refer to the scaling debate and the whole fork situation as um, actually, can you still hear me? I see uh, the little icon here has gone off. No, I muted my microphone because there's a dog barking outside. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, no. Okay. So um, I saw the, um, I saw the scaling debates and, and the fork situation as the last existential crisis for Bitcoin. Uh, for me, it was the last hurdle is the thing that I needed personally for me to feel like we are going to make it and we're going to make it within my lifetime. Um, I was uh, unsure about the results all the way up till August 1st, 2017. Uh, that is the day that I chose to open Seaside Crypto because of um, uh, the lock-in period. Um, I... I had this feeling that, you know, if for some reason it didn't work, then that's how you, you kill Bitcoin. If, if we, if we gave ground on just two megabytes, just whatever, uh, then you have a, you set yourself up for a scenario where you give ground every couple of years down the road on, on some new bell and some new whistle. That, that comes out and, and that's just the death of the project because you know that's creep of your of your scope and what it is that you're trying to accomplish with the project so uh, I thought that that it could absolutely be the thing that uh, that causes me to lose interest and say well shit you know I'm not going to get involved at this point but I had um, I had faith uh, you know uh, I was very much uh, uh, UASF and I uh, very much hoped that it would work out. I had signed the lease on the place uh, for, for Seaside Crypto. I had moved all the furniture in. I had the signs ready to put up. And it was literally like I woke up on, on August 1st and I was checking Twitter and I was seeing what's going on and, and exploring the blockchain a little bit. And uh, everything started to, to happen for, for the good. And uh, Segregated Witness was locking in. And I said, okay, 
now I feel good. Let me put in, uh, let me put up the signs <laughs> and turn on the open sign, you know, and, and, and let's do it because uh, uh, now I don't think there's anything realistically that, that can stop it. Uh, you know, you have to, you have to destroy the, the, the internet in order to stop it. And even, even that's probably not going to work at this point too. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, that's my take on, on scaling is it was the last real threat. And now that it's over, it's sort of the golden age. Uh, we can we can develop in peace, and we can, you know, take advantage of uh, uh, the, the the market effects of everybody else getting involved and excited about it too. So um, I, I really see the the story of the next you know several years as as being uh, the story of the the not so gradual, uh, probably quicker than we expect adoption of Bitcoin, and that's a good thing. That's a strange kind of telling the story. Because if you ask the Bitcoin cash side, they're going to say, oh, no, we stopped the adoption. We prevented <laughs> merchants from getting into the space. And it's thanks to our stubbornness and unwillingness to change according to market demands that we lost so many partners that were interested in accepting Bitcoin as a mean of payment. Yeah, well, I, I, don't, I, don't have, I don't follow any of those accounts, so I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I, I follow them just to stay informed and see what sure. they're up to because they are very postmodernist in terms of shaping narratives and constantly oh, okay. ch changing and trying to influence others. I think Roger Veer is a mastermind in this regard. He seems to appeal to a certain demographic of libertarians. He likes to pose as the victim all the time. Like he's weak and he's trying so hard to bring this ideal to fruition. But at the same time, he's very much aware of what he's doing. At least that's my perception of him. Maybe. I, uh, I, I honestly don't, don't give it a lot of thought. There's, um, like, like I said, uh, the, the, the limitation, the bottleneck here is my brain. It's only so big. Uh, it's, it's quite tiny, actually. And it only has room for just a narrow focus of what's cool and interesting in Bitcoin. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of happy with that, with that narrow focus. It's also interesting that people like Gavin Andreessen, who is maybe the de facto leader of the project and has been for many years, he released a proposal a BIP. It was called BIP 101. And his idea was to just scale it according to Moore's law. So every couple of years, you would have a block size increase. And at the time you had exchanges like Coinbase, I think Brian Armstrong tweeted in favor of it. And it seemed a great way to centralize the protocol to allow the actors that in very early. Yeah. That's that's obviously the point. You know, uh, it, it's it's all about control. Uh, those are those are ways that you can uh, attempt to exert control over the network, and you know, uh, all of them have to be rejected. Um, there there has to be a, a hard cap limit on supply. There has to be a hard cap limit on uh, on, on block size. Um, it, can it be adjusted? Maybe. I, who, who gives a shit? I'm I'm happy with it exactly the way that it is right now. I want a fee market to develop. I want transaction fees on the base layer to, to, to be robust enough to provide good security. 
And that's, that's only going to happen if you just leave the thing the hell alone. If you keep messing with it, uh, you, you throw the dynamic of uh, the, the profitability of, of mining in, into to chaos every couple of years. And that's just terrible for, for an industry that needs to, to gain a, a stable footing uh, and, and, and have that, that foundation that can last, you know, hundreds of years uh, into the future. So, you know, in, in my mind, uh, I just, I reject out of hand uh, all of those ideas and say what we have right now is absolutely adequate. And uh, when you think about any of the, the possible nice aspects of increasing the block size, all of those uh, niceties uh, you can find with, with these other types of software solutions, like, uh, like using the Lightning Network, like using uh, liquid uh, federated sidechains. Uh, so I, I just, I don't see a compelling argument to, to do anything on, on the base layer at this point with the very possible exception of, you know, another round with like, you know, Schnorr and all of that jazz. To me, it's interesting that we have these developers who are basically the gatekeepers of the protocol. And even though we like to say that everything is immutable and there is no way to hard fork, we, we have had hard forks in the past. And we have learned some hard lessons about how blockchains should be governed and how Bitcoin should be protected from malicious attacks. Yeah, but there but, is but a high amount of trust that we have to vest into these people and we have yeah, to but, trust their honesty. And I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that we do. I mean, uh, th there certainly was a time where that was true. Uh, I, I won't debate that. Um, but is, is it still true today? I, you know, I just I don't think that it is. I, I think that right now you have an environment where there are what, uh, maybe 100,000 uh, nodes out there in the wild, uh, Bitcoin core clients. Uh, hell, maybe it's uh, bigger now. I don't know. There's just been a lot of interest over the last uh, uh, year. Um, I, I, I just don't, I don't think they're gatekeepers anymore. I think that uh, there's, there's code that, that is out there that's available for anyone to run. And um, any, any uh, changes uh, to that code are just going to, have to go through the, the most stringent review and acceptance policy that any software program has ever had in the entire history of, of computers. Um, and that's the, the challenge that is, is set for us with something like, you know, upgrading Schnorr and getting masked and, and all these other, like I said, all these other things. So, you know, uh, in, even if it didn't happen, I would, I would be okay with that. You know, I, I, think that, I think that where we are right now is, is functional. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think that we are in a place where, where we don't have to, to worry too much about that, that level of control and that level of gatekeeping, despite the fact that people, you know, um, keep making these, uh, uh, these accusations about it. I, I just, I don't see it. But, you know, again, just my perspective. I think it would be a good idea to have more developers. And it, it blows my mind sometimes when I think about the fact that some people have become millionaires and billionaires by trading Bitcoin, but they're not willing to at least finance a team of developers to work on open source projects, to experiment, to have more talented individuals involved into Bitcoin development. 
at least make a useful wallet. Wasabi is a a project which was created out out of love, right? For, for Bitcoin, right. it's not well, like I, you had a company which had an interest to release a good project. It's the same with Wasabi. You have passionate people, uh, not Wasabi, Samurai. Also Wasabi, but I mentioned it before. So Samurai also is in the situation where you have people who are genuinely passionate. Yes. Yes. Uh, with, with high levels of, of technical ability, high levels of, of integrity, building the technology that um, corporate investment never would. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, those, those people are rare. The Satoshis of the world are very rare. And when they come along, they should be celebrated and we should lift them up and help build statues in their honor and all of those things. But, um, you know, I draw the line at saying that there's a necessarily obligation. I, I think that you're going to have people that are going to, to squat and hold on to coin and not spend it. And from a certain perspective, just that activity is also a contribution back into the space. Um, it, especially for the first couple of years, if, if some of these people that had large balances uh, were more open with them and, and spend them more, uh, it would obviously be, uh, you know, uh, downward pressure on, on uh, uh, the price uh, in, in the market. And, you know, that uh, there's an argument that could be made that uh, they're doing a service by, by holding. Um, and for what it's worth, I, I do think that ultimately many of them will, uh, take on projects that change the world. Uh, and I just say that as a sort of personal feeling, uh, from, you know, watching not only Bitcoin, but all of these digital currency initiatives that have happened, uh, over the last two decades, uh, they are, there are people that get involved because they want to change things. You know, the, I, in 2012, 2011, 2010, if you told me that people were, were saying to themselves, oh my gosh, I'm going to buy a, a whole bunch of Bitcoin because I'm going to be a billionaire in, in 10 or 15 years, I, I would tell you you're, you're full of crap because I, maybe there were a handful of people that felt like it was going to happen within that time frame, but that certainly wasn't my experience. My experience uh, was that it was a cool new technology. Maybe it takes off. Maybe it, it takes, you know, uh, until my grandkids are around before it really starts flowing. And, and then who even knows what, what price means or, or matters there, you know? Uh, so I don't know. I, I kind of push back against the idea that there's this, mastermind uh, uh, set of individuals that, you know, are massively hoarding this for, for ill intent and, and, and strictly personal gain. Uh, I, I know that's a, a very popular trope, but uh, I, I just don't know who those, those people are, you know? I mean, even the people that are in the space that, that sort of fit that description, like your Vares and your Ayers and your whoever's, uh, it, <laughs> they're not, they're not hoarding very well. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're doing stupid things like spending money to, to prop up, uh, you know, uh, do transaction, uh, attacks, mempool attacks, uh, prop up the price, uh, do this, that, and the other. And so, I mean, 
their wealth will be separated from them uh, through through a very natural process in a very short period of time. So, you know, even the bad guy villains out there, I, I just I, I don't see them, you know, being that that uh, billionaire villain archetype that uh, that everybody talks about. But you know, again, just uh, just one guy's perspective. I appreciate people like Jack Dorsey. He got involved publicly around 2018. But once he announced that Cash App would also integrate Lightning payments, and I think it was at Consensus 2018. Hmm. A few months later, he also announced that he was hiring developers to work on Bitcoin projects. And he had about three positions for coders and one position oh, yeah. for a designer. Sure. And that's impressive. And I feel like more people should be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, absolutely. But you also have to understand that, I mean, he, he has a vested interest in doing that. Um, there's an alignment with his selfish motivation of, of creating a great company uh, through Square uh, to, to bring a payments technology to the general public that it hasn't had access to. And so that is, I mean, you can look at it and say that it's, that it's altruism, but um, it, it's not exactly, right? You know, there, there is, there is a, an element to it that is self-interested. Um, but it's an intelligently informed self-interest. You, on the other hand, you have companies like, you know, Bitmain, who uh, could have been intelligently self-interested, <laughs> uh, but they were unintelligently uh, self-interested and, uh, you know, chose a different path. Uh, so I, I definitely, you know, see your, uh, your point of view there. But um, I also think that that's, that's how you incentivize uh, these, these companies to, uh, to, to spend money and, and bring on, you know, these open source developers is to, to really have them understand that, you know, it, it's, it's not pure altruism. It is, it is you investing in the, the sort of the brain trust of your company and, and understanding that you have to have this knowledge internally in order to take advantage of the cutting edge technology. We're talking bleeding edge stuff. Stuff happens every single day in this space. There are new articles, new theories, kids you've never heard of that are 15 in Switzerland writing, you know, these, these, these theses and uh, uncovering these new possibilities, like uh, you, you have to have your, your eyes on the radar screen. Uh, and the best way to do that is through, uh, through funding open source developers uh, that are responsible for, you know, helping put a little bit of a hand on the wheel, so to speak, in, in the marketplace. And it's that message that we have to get across to, to, the, to the bigger companies in the space. And if they heard it that way, uh, I think that would open their, their, their mind to it a little bit, and, and they would be more uh, open to, uh, to, to funding that type of activity. So, you know, all, all I can hope for is that someone uh, close to them is whispering in their ear and saying that exact same thing. On this topic, usually, I, I think it's a popular narrative nowadays that Bitcoin is losing developers to Ethereum just because the community is overly toxic. And have you encountered any kind of toxicity? Because in my experience, aside from the relentless trolling, people are very helpful and willing to explain stuff to you and help you run your own node. And yes, 
Yes. Problems. No, that, that, that has absolutely been my experience. I, um, I have never once, and, and I, I guarantee you I have deserved it. Uh, I have never once felt uh, a toxic pushback against me asking questions or trying to get involved, even when my questions were patently stupid. Uh, and, and there have been so many of those. Uh, I, I, I always have felt like someone was willing to take the time to, to, to stop and educate me. And if they didn't, then I was met with silence and not toxicity. And I think that's pretty much par for the course with most technical development environments uh, that, that I've experienced uh, uh, in, in my lifetime. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know who is, is leaving because of a, a toxic culture. I, I think that's just a bunch of malarkey. I think that people, I, I hear more about people calling each other toxic than I see toxicity. And, uh, you know, you have to kind of question at a certain point, why would you keep saying that? Uh, I, I don't see any evidence of that. Uh, and, and honestly, I think at, at a certain point, it's just projection. I think it's projection because you've got these developers that are uh, new to the space and they find a, a, a project that someone has sold them a bill of goods about what the technology can do, whether that's you know Ethereum or EOS or any of these other, I, I don't even know what projects are out there. I don't care to know. But someone is selling them a bill of goods and they go inside and they start actually learning and actually trying to put the pieces together and they, <laughs> they, they feel disillusioned because uh, at, at the end of the day, it just isn't working. You know, uh, I, I see in my feed all of the time, you know, problems with these, these contracts getting shut down and people losing money and, and, and all of that. Uh, and, and if I were in that space and if I were disillusioned, I would probably lash out and, and project out. And I think that projection takes the form of the, the, the toxicity blame game uh, because there always has to be a bad guy, right? It, it can't be that I made a, a bad choice by learning how to develop in Tron. <laughs> yeah, but I guess we also have the same flux of SJW culture with some people feeling offended that the space is mostly masculine and you don't have many minorities being represented and people argue that years ago it was all pseudonymous and nobody cared what you are where you came from what well, kind I think of it's background you had it was all about what you could do and how you could help the whole community flourish. Yeah, I, I think it's still that way. I, I think that if I were to if I were to go through the list of the people that I follow, uh, I would I would wager that there are more uh, anonymous accounts than there are accounts with a, a professional name attached to them. Um, and uh, some of the most fascinating accounts are the ones that are anonymous. Um, and, and, you know, for what it's worth, you know, I, I really, I just, I push back against the idea of, 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 of denigrating the, that approach as being a social justice warrior. I really, really hate that term because to my mind, social justice is 
a, a good thing to, to, to fight for. Uh, if I were to look through a, a dictionary and come across the word social justice warrior, I would say Jeremy is a social justice warrior. I think that's good. I think that we have to be aware of uh, the institutional uh, racism and sexism uh, that, that's just inherent in our culture, and it's a very big problem, and there's no getting around that. But I think that when you try to take the, the, the problems that, that we have as a society and uh, stick them through the pinhole and say, oh my God, Bitcoin is uh, sexist or racist, um, I don't think that it really makes sense because the, the relationship of the concepts uh, doesn't make sense. Uh, our society is racist and sexist, and Bitcoin is part of our society. It, it's not a, a, a causative relationship. It is a correlative relationship, and uh, there is a significant difference. And for what it's worth, I, I don't see a lot of that, honestly. I mean, you, you do have a couple of nutso stormtroopers out there but um, they're very much in the minority, in my opinion. Yeah, also, I think you mentioned before we started recording that you haven't heard of me before and I started popping out all of a sudden. I used to be a vampire on Twitter. <laughs> yes, that's, you know, as, as we've been talking, I, I've, I've been putting that together. <laughs> Thank you for, for saying vampire that. Vampire account. And yes. Somebody told me, I, I think, yeah, it was Dan Darkpill. He told me, you're not going to make it in this space and have a successful podcast and be a successful journalist if you use a pseudonym on social media. Just be yourself, do your stuff, and get the proper recognition to actually grow. Well, I mean, it depends on your definition of success, right? I mean, Blog Digest is fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, some, some of the insights that I have learned from, uh, from that, uh, that show back in the day, I haven't really uh, followed anything recently, uh, were, were absolutely fantastic. And I think that uh, what Brian and uh, Janine were doing with their uh, relative anonymity gave them a, a, an opportunity to, to really explore some themes and some concepts and, and, and hit a little bit harder than I think uh, a lot of these guys with, um, <clears throat> you know, their big names attached to it and, you know, trying to, you know, talk about how many subscribers they have and their revenue and all this, that, and the other. And, hey, you know, if, if that's why you're in it, then, then fine. But uh, you can be successful uh, socially and not successful monetarily. So, you know, if I were to, to give uh, any sort of my two cents to this, to you, that right, is, uh, you know, be successful for, for what's in your heart, uh, for what you want to do to the space. And, uh, you know, don't worry about any of the other stuff. You, you, you find the thing that, that makes you happy, uh, that, that gives you joy to, to, educate people and, and to tackle subjects that other people aren't tackling from a unique perspective, you find that thing. And who cares about the money? Who cares about uh, what someone else might say is your success or not? You're doing a fantastic thing. And uh, in, in my book, uh, you're successful. Uh, and I don't know. That's, that's my two cents on it. Uh, but uh, yeah. I think I'm very successful in terms of learning. There you go. 
I, like I talk to all sorts of people with different backgrounds and I learn so much from them that sometimes I feel like this is a very egotistical project. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, do you have examples? I mean, obviously I'm not asking you to throw anybody under the bus, but uh, I'm just saying, what do you mean by that? I mean that when people talk during podcasts, they use the kind of knowledge which they have acquired over months or maybe years. And it's selfish to be able to absorb that kind of understanding, maybe during one hour of conversation. Hmm. And you get to find out something of which you, uh, I wouldn't have taught otherwise. Yeah. There well, are so I many mean, perspectives on something so simple. It's just digital money. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's it's good to bring it back to 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 you know reality check there. And yeah, guys, it's it is just money. Uh, it's fun to talk about and, and get excited about, but it, at the end of the day, it is pretty simple. It's <laughs> a good point. A good question, which I usually ask people, is: Do you think we are some kind of cult, or do you have? Do you have any idea if we resemble any of the characteristics of one? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but it, the, the question isn't, are you a cult? It's, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? All, all, of, all of every movement throughout history began as a cult. A cult is a culture. It's, it's a, a shared idea. It's a shared set of values around uh, some externality that... Um, that that group has to deal with in a certain way. Uh, and, and so in, in the most bare bones academic way, absolutely. It, it's cultish. Um, can cults take on uh, good or, or, or bad uh, flavors or, or attributes? Absolutely. They can, and you should, you should guard against that uh, as much as possible. Um, but just because someone says it's a cult, uh, a doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing, and B, it's probably projecting their own anger uh, around the situation too, because it has a negative connotation to it, right? You know, cult always means you know David Koresh or you know those guys with the Nike sneakers and the meteor, or whatever they were, uh, you know. And, and so that's the 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 image that you that you populate when when people use that word, but it, it's not always the case. So we're not Charles Manson, but we're special in our own way. Right, right. Exactly. Special in our own way. <laughs> it's some more special than others. <laughs> it's strange because some people have invented a lifestyle for being into Bitcoin. You're supposed to yeah. meet, you're supposed to love the idea of owning guns. Right, right. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Bitcoin can become a part of your identity very easily. I feel like it has for me um, because I spend so much time with it. But uh, and and I'm a gun owner as well. But I don't, uh, you know, wear that on my sleeve. Uh, you know, I I also think that uh, you know all of these other uh, aspects of uh, you know culture signaling whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, whether it's uh, having a certain type of diet or, you know, who, who cares? Uh, everybody's just having fun with us, and, and it's the, their own way to, to create community. It's perfectly natural human characteristic. 
uh, as the, the group that is quote unquote Bitcoin gets larger, you will see more of those uh, out groups form around uh, additional uh, qualifiers like diet and like gun ownership and like in any number of other things. Um, it's just a natural part of uh, culture developing and, and springing off little baby cultures. I didn't think about it too much, but it makes a lot of sense. Right now, we are seeing some kind of homogenization where people tend to go towards one kind of archetype, like the Bitcoin maximalist. Hmm. You like Bitcoin that much, you become a maximalist. Right. right. It's hard to tell what a maximalist is anymore because people use the label so much in so many different contexts that... You can either return to that derogatory article by Vitalik from 2014. Right. Or you can think of people like Saifedean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, I totally feel you. I, um, um, I've gone to conferences wearing a shirt that says Bitcoin maximalist on it. You know, I, I, I have worn that title as a, a badge of honor uh, in, in the past. I don't uh, use that particular terminology much anymore just because it doesn't interest me. I, um, <clears throat> it, it's, I, I saw it as like a, a phase uh, to go through. It, it was a way to, to, to signal to everyone else that I felt like I, I got it, that I understood uh, the, the core value proposition of what Bitcoin is. And because I understood that core value proposition, I was able to recognize that the value propositions of all these alternative coins uh, uh, left a lot to be desired. And I think that's uh, part of everyone's journey as they, they go through that. I, I think that <clears throat> you hear on Bitcoin Twitter that, you know, everyone who sticks around long enough becomes a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, but I don't think that's where the, the journey ends because I, I think that you can go through that to another area where it's just irrelevant. It's just money. And when you get out on the other side of that, that development pipeline and you realize it's just money, it's important, but, you know, all of these other uh, labels and, 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 and attributes uh, that you put on it uh, yeah, are, are just ways to, to create and create drama, create a little bit of friction, create a little bit of movement, create a little bit of life. Uh, that's necessary in the, in the early part of culture formation. Uh, but after a certain point where, like what you said, you start to homogenize, uh, that friction is no longer uh, necessary and, and maybe even undesirable. Um, but uh, uh, for me, largely, it just becomes irrelevant. And you focus instead on uh, the technology and, and how you can start to apply it in, in daily life because you, you still have the situation, no matter what name you put on it, that... 10 years from now, uh, we're going to live in a, uh, in, in a world that uses uh, Bitcoin primarily for the exchange of value, uh, either uh, in, in combination with lots of different types of software that are built around it or through some uh, integrated type of, of software. But, but 10 years from now, that will be the case. Uh, that is not even a question in my mind. But it's obviously not the case now. And so we have the, the problem. How do you get from A to B? 
And uh, for me, that's just the practical application of the software that we have in an iterative process where you're not going to get everything right, but let's get the software installed. Let's start using it. Let's, let's create the business flow that you need to, to, to have to make this thing work. And uh, in doing so, you'll uncover opportunities and new areas for research and development. And, and that's how we get to 10 years down the road. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily that we stay in, in the place where we have to put labels on each other uh, 24-7. Uh, I don't think that, you know, I mean, like I said, it's, it's important at the beginning when you have competing interests. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, that, you know, that, that, that argument has been settled. Uh, it's been settled in my mind for a long time, but it's certainly been settled in the marketplace uh, very recently. And uh, I'm just very eager to, to move beyond that particular conversation and start talking about practical application. I think I understand what you're saying as sometimes I feel like I should detach from all of this drama and just take some time to better understand where the no-coiners are and what their understanding of the phenomena actually is, where they position themselves. And I know that this is kind of an ivory tower kind of situation where you look at people who don't really understand something which is complex and have been able to grasp to some extent and that no-coiners are under no circumstance any kind of uniform group which requires the same kind of effort and right. can be labeled as such. Right. But I yeah. try to understand the mindset of the regular person who works from nine to five and maybe doesn't get much satisfaction out of the kind of living that he or she makes, but at the same time doesn't feel the need to rebel against the system. Right. Right. Yeah. Most people are not rebellious. Most people do what they're told. Um, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and it's also important to, to not think of these people as monolith because they're not, they're, they're wide and varied in their interests and beliefs and, and uh, ideologies and all, all of those things. Um, and, you know, my two cents on it would be that um, <clears throat> they're going to end up using Bitcoin and most of them will never, ever know it. Uh, it's just that, their friend at work will tell them about this new app that lets them, you know, do something original and new with money that they haven't been able to do before. Like, for example, creating uh, M of N contracts with uh, their, their friends and family. And that application is going to be so awesome for them that they're going to say, okay, yeah, let me, let me try out this new app and, and, and do these sorts of things because I want to have, uh, you know, the, the same abilities that, banks have had for their very wealthy customers for, for many years. You know, if, if you are a person of wealth or a large business, you've had access to all of these very complicated financial instruments. Uh, but the lay person, uh, the, 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 the regular person on the street has not had access uh, to those same types of instruments, but they will be open to all on a, a network that's built on uh, the principles of, of Bitcoin. And so when people realize that those types of arrangements, those types of contracts uh, are useful in, in different circumstances and this new app lets them do that, then, then they're, going to, they're going to want to embrace that. Uh, but they're embracing the functionality 
not the technology necessarily that underlies that that functionality. So, you know that <clears throat> that that's my my take on it because if we if we think of Bitcoin adoption as printing out you know millions of copies of uh, the Internet of Money and and distributing it to everybody, that's fine on a on a very superficial level. Uh, but not everybody is going to a understand or b be convinced by uh, the, these types of uh, uh, ideological arguments. Uh, they, they simply want functionality that they haven't had access to. And you know, I gave that example of of the multi-signature contract, but it might just be access to the, the simple function of a, of a checking account that that a billion people around the world don't have. So, you know, like I said, I don't think it's about Bitcoin per se. I think it's about uh, gaining access to a particular function of money that that you haven't had access to before, and for some people that that function might be censorship resistance. Uh, maybe the person is, <coughs> you know, uh, uh, the Silk Road type, or or, or maybe an independent journalist in a hostile uh, country, or who, who knows. Uh, so censorship resistance is a very important uh, functionality uh, for, for the transfer of money that, that was an original use case. But it will be these other use cases that, uh, that drive adoption and not necessarily education around the subject. And that might be an unpopular opinion uh, within some circles of the Bitcoin community. But uh, again, you know, it's just my two cents. Do you ever think of Bitcoin as a geopolitical mean which works against the foreign interests of the United States of America? That's a, that's a heavy question. Um, I know. I, I think about it at night sometimes and I, uh, I basically frame it as by supporting Bitcoin, am I actually helping Russia or China? Yeah. Well, I mean... Uh, by supporting cash, are you helping Russia or China? By supporting gold, are you supporting Saudi Arabia? Uh, you know, um, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it, it's hard to, to link those two things in my mind um, because it's, it's just, it's more primal than that. It's, it's me having a store of value that I can use the way that I want to use it or maybe in this new fancy way that the technology lets me do, and any other consideration like who who it helps or doesn't help uh, is is kind of secondary. With one exception, uh, I'm glad that it doesn't help the traditional legacy banking system. I'm fantastically excited that it doesn't help <laughs> Wall Street and um, the ruling elite <laughs> and. Uh, all of that aspect of, of, of this is um, very much revolutionary in, in, in that regard. So uh, I'm, I'm more focused on what, on who Bitcoin doesn't help than, than who it helps. Yeah, that's interesting. But we have seen that tweet by Donald Trump a couple of days ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw. It was the yeah. first no. time a U.S. president mentioned Bitcoin on Twitter or in writing. I guess Barack Obama... Yeah made a speech once and spoke about the dangers of a Swiss wallet in your pocket. Right. Right. <coughs> a no, I, I, account I, I, in your pocket. I think that was the narrative at the time. Yeah. But with yeah. Trump, it's right now, I think it's all about positioning U S dollar 
as the hegemonic currency of the world? Right. Well, I mean, obviously that's, that's already game over, right? I mean, take Bitcoin out of the situation completely and the U.S. dollar is no longer in, in control. It's no longer the reserve currency. You have uh, multiple huge economies doing uh, deals outside of the realm of the dollar uh, today. And for the last, um, uh, for the last while, I, I don't have the specific dates, um, but the, to say, to say that, uh, Bitcoin is playing a role in that, uh, is I think a little disingenuous because the, the, the reserve currency status of the dollar has, has already been lost. If you ask me, we'd lost it in 1971. Um, but it's just taken a while for everybody to, to figure out. Um, but yeah, there's, there's no, there's no relationship I think right now between, um, the United States losing its, uh, uh its status, um, and, and Bitcoin. Um, I am glad that, uh, uh, Trump said what he said. Uh, I would have been very concerned if he, tweeted and said, Hey, I really like Bitcoin. <laughs> that would not have been a good situation at all. We wouldn't have stopped hearing about that for, for quite some time. So I'm, I'm actually very thankful that he just kind of put it on the radar screen for a lot of people. Um, and they'll at least understand the positioning of Bitcoin in relation to uh, its ultimate proposition, uh, which is uh, being a sovereign currency. Uh, so he actually helped quite a bit by putting Bitcoin on the same pedestal as uh, the dollar and, and as all of these uh, uh, other currencies, uh, implying that they were uh, somehow competing within the same space. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really the, the eye-opener that a lot of people need is just to understand that, that yeah, that, that it's there, that that's that's what its purpose is. And then the education comes later if they want it, you know, you, you can, you can dig into it. You can go down that rabbit hole, but you know, even if you just were, you know, Jane Doe walking down the street and you saw that tweet, uh, now you've got it in the back of your mind and it becomes, you know, part of the zeitgeist. And that's uh, that's a good thing in my opinion. It's interesting that you're part of the military. Mm-hmm. And somehow you're not that hardcore patriot who supports his country. And oh, I was uh, 100%. I <clears throat> uh, uh, when I when I was very very young, when I was a teenager, um, I, I was I considered myself an anarchist, uh, uh, straight and narrow, very ideologically defined. <clears throat> and then um, I decided that uh, the the reason why I felt that way is because that there were systemic problems with how we are governing ourselves and I wanted to do what I could to, to write the ship. And I felt like the best way to do that was to, uh, to do it through the command and control structure of the United States army. Um, I had a plan and everything laid out, but I quickly learned that I was wrong about that as well. Um, and took, the best of both worlds, I guess, and, and started to create my own view of patriotism. If, if you asked me, Jeremy, are you a patriot? I would say, yes, I am a patriot in the sense that I want America to be uh, a, a, a light for the world, uh, a, a place where you understand that you have freedom and democracy 
And unfortunately, in, in many cases, that just seems to be less and less true. Um, and and that's, that's very sad to me. So uh, am I a patriot? Yes, but, uh, you know, uh, a bit of a sad one, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. So you're not a patriot in the meaning conveyed by the military, maybe, which means that <laughs> yeah. you support your country at all costs, no question asked. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I took an oath, um, you know, to uh, protect and defend the Constitution. Uh, and I, I have, uh, to this day, a strong admiration for the ideas of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And um, I think that uh, the way that we crafted our government here um, is is the the pinnacle of human thought and and action in the world of governance. Um, I think that we've uh, slid quite a long way from that original goal, <clears throat> but uh, but I do uh, still believe in those those ideals. Um, yeah, no. Uh, so I, I I I would say that I have that feeling, but it's. Uh, it's an, it's informed uh, by more years of experience. I think we have some similarities in this regard. As my background is in political science, mm -hmm. I went to university, I did it. I, I was basically taught that everything should be done through policy, through the state, through legislation and stuff right. like that. And the only way to change stuff is to get involved into politics, join a party or run as an independent and basically become part of the establishment and try to maintain your pure ideals all the way to the top, which seems to be kind of impossible for reasons that individuals who do maintain ideals don't end up getting to the top. That's, right. That's reality which you discover later yeah but i came to this i guess crossroad where you can either become part of the system and part of the establishment and try to change it from the inside right assuming that you'll keep the same ideals and you will not just give in and become numb to all the right. issues or you can try to change it from the outside by embracing something which pushes your own government to become more accountable, more transparent, to actually care for you. When you're basically telling your government that you're not using their money anymore, then that should ring the alarm. You should be yeah. shocked and say, well, what can we do for you? Because we want to remain legitimate. We want to govern. So if you don't acknowledge our power over you, then we can either use force, which is going to work against us in the long term, because governments usually create martyrs who are remembered over the years, or we can negotiate. And personally, I hope for that situation where we're going to negotiate with our governments and once again establish that social contract. What yeah, you know, I, I, I see it as, 
putting putting the idea of currency into a marketplace. You know, you <clears throat> the, the 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 word currency is interesting to me because you can have all types of currency, right? You can have you know, hard currency in the sense of money, but you can have social currency among your, your peer group or, uh, you know, the general public, for example. And uh, currency in, in that sense means, you know, what you are able to do because someone acknowledges the value of what you have to say or, you know, the value of uh, the, the token or the promise that you're expressing, right? So that's kind of more to the core of what the word currency means. And if you have a situation, uh, let's say in the social setting, where you don't have a marketplace for social currency, you're just simply told, well, here's Joe Blow, and you have to give him all of the social currency and, uh, you know, just listen to him, you know, at, at, any, at any cost. You know, maybe he's the king or some sort of uh, autocratic ruler um, trying to dominate social currency. Um, if you prevent a market from springing up around the idea of social currency, I think that you are manipulating the market and that will always end badly. And I think the same thing is true with currency in the sense of, of, of hard money, of, of the expression of value. <clears throat> if you don't allow currency to exist in a market, you are manipulating that market and it will always end badly. Um, it may take a hundred years, uh, but it will ultimately end badly. And the longer you push it down, uh, the harder the explosion is, is going to rock you back. You know, uh, that's uh, kind of the, the way that I see it. So you just have to let currency uh, compete in the marketplace. And that's what Bitcoin does. Yep. To me, sometimes it's scary. I think about what our world is going to look like if we have a deflationary currency, mm. which has a lot of whales. And it makes yeah. me wonder, do these people have any kind of morals and will they be able to donate to the poor and say, we want to also decentralize the ownership so that you don't have this kind of scenario where 1% of owners right. hold most of the wealth? Or are we going to replicate the same system, but with, with a deflationary, objectively superior right. currency? Yeah, are, are we moving into a new digital feudalism, right? Uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I think that, um, that there's the possibility that that happens. But I would say that most of those scenarios involve a, a lack of government in the form that we have today. And this is where I, I differ from a lot of people in the Bitcoin space, when, when they view Bitcoin as uh, a nation state killer or, you know, completely destroying the ability of the nation state to, to exist. I don't think that's the case. And I don't think that's the case because uh, there's nothing about um, having a hard money detached from the state that prevents the state from uh, taxation. Uh, right, it can be very difficult if you're trying to do things like sales tax or income tax, uh, because the technology might allow you to blind transactions uh, or, or to uh, completely obfuscate what you're attempting to do in a financial system. Uh, but you can always have a tax on real estate, for example. Uh, so if I wanted to buy a house in a city, 
that city can very easily say you can have this house and you can live in this house, but you have to pay X number of Bitcoin every year as tax uh, on the land and on the structure in order to fund the city government so that it continues to, to operate. And the same is true on a regional state and national level. And the idea of that not being able to happen, I think is, is, is juvenile and, um, uh, uninformed. And so you still have a scenario where you can have government that issues taxes, it's paid in Bitcoin, but it has to take a, a form, I think, that's uh, that's more fair and more progressive. And uh, tax on land would be exactly that. It's not a new concept. It's a concept known as Georgism, uh, which anybody, uh, any of your listeners can go and, and Google. It's just the concept that there's Lots of different types of taxes, uh, but under a system of Georgism, you only have taxes on land and perhaps tariffs. It kind of depends there. Uh, you know, and many noted uh, conservative economists, uh, like Alan Greenspan and uh, others, you know, have uh, opined that um, you know the land tax is the least terrible of the taxes. That wasn't Greenspan. That was somebody else. And, and the name is escaping me right now. But regardless, that's the, the concept. So if you have a government and it is being funded, it can still act in a, um, a way that's geared towards uh, the good of the, the population and, and have a social welfare program. Uh, there's, there's nothing that, that, that means that those two scenarios are mutually exclusive, right? You can have a hard money not controlled by the state, still have a state, still have taxes, still have a social welfare program. And honestly, in that scenario, I think that's sort of like the best of both worlds, right? Uh, we have stability in our neighborhoods and our cities and our, and our uh, states and, 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 and whatever. Um, and, and we also have the benefits of, um, you know, our currency floating on the market. So I, I, I recognize the neo-feudalism uh, uh, argument or or scenario as a possibility when governments can break down and there's no centralized uh, control or no uh, sort of um, in, internal defense force or police force. But um, I, I think that's, uh, all things being equal, a relatively unlikely scenario. So I'm hopeful. Let's hope for the best and <laughs> let's hope that the ideals which led to the creation of Bitcoin will be implemented in a post-Bitcoinization world. Right. I guess yeah. the people who got in early are also the ones who own most of the coins. It's speculation. I mean, who, who knows? Uh, personally, <laughs> I, I think most of those old addresses, I don't know if I would say most, but a lot of those old addresses are burned. I know I've heard, you know, uh, estimates ranging three or four million Bitcoin burned. And that might be the case if you were to do an audit um, right now. But consider uh, 10 years from now. Um, I think that 10 years from now, over half of the uh, addressable Satoshis in the Bitcoin network will be effectively inaccessible. Um, and I feel that way because of one <clears throat> just sort of true aspect of human nature. Uh, not everybody prepares for the future. Um, today, about 40% 
of all of the people who die, die without a will. And those numbers are higher uh, within the African-American and Hispanic communities uh, and other communities of color. Uh, but all, all, all across the board, you're about 40%. And if someone dies today without a will, it's not necessarily a big deal. Uh, you go down to the bank and you show them the death certificate and the bank officials, you know, scratch their heads and they send it to their boss and somebody puts a stamp on it. And eventually they release to you uh, the balance that was in uh, your dead relative's account. Uh, and that's all fine. Obviously, this is not possible uh, with Bitcoin. And that 40%, I will say, does tend to skew towards the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, but still, 40% is a hell of a lot. And while the average person might only die with three or four or $500 or so uh, worth of, of money today in a deflationary world where savings is incentivized, that number is likely to be higher. Uh, however, the basic human nature of not planning for the future and not writing a will and having an intestacy where you're able to, to, to pass that wealth securely to someone else, uh, that's just not going to change. That's just human nature. So when you think about it, Every year, 40% is kind of, or, or however you want to work that out math-wise, that's it, it, being taken off the table. Uh, so you have that aspect of it as well that, that's a pressure against long-term aristocratic accumulation of wealth, right? Um, and I could go further and say that, um, you know, that, that feudalism environment that we were talking about uh, earlier uh, where you do have an aristocracy that uh, that uh, that lasts and persists, I actually think is um, unlikely in in a post Bitcoin world because, to my mind, aristocracy requires inflation. Uh, I don't think that aristocratic families and uh you know groupings of these powerful individuals can persist over generations without a tool as powerful as inflation to sap wealth and resources out of a uh population uh that's the reason why we have it <laughs> so if you take away the ability to to suck up wealth from the entire populace through um inflation i, I think you make it l much less likely that um, you can have these these long lasting uh dynasties of, uh, of of families and uh and whatnot and i and i do think that uh we're I'm, obviously we're getting a little bit cosmic here right we're talking 10 20 30 years down the road but I do think we do reach a more egalitarian distribution of, of resources. Um, but, you know, I, I have no, I have no evidence to point to that other than my own speculation. So take that with a grain of salt. I think that wills will be replaced by multi-sig contracts. Maybe. Where you, you hold one part of the private key, you give one part to whoever you want to inherit your wealth when you die. Right. And then that third part will be given to the bank. And in this case, we can think of examples like CASA, who right. already do this. They hold one part of your private key. And there is no way for them to access your funds without the consent of at least, I think they do two out of three and three out of five. Right. Yeah, I mean, that'll, that'll definitely happen. And, you know, 60% of the people will take advantage of those kinds of arrangements. You know, there'll always be people who won't. Uh, so that will always take, you know, Satoshi's off the table. 
but uh, it would be interesting uh, to to see. Um, one of the the things that uh, that I like to to study and read about and fantasize about trying to actually make are really long lived organizations. You know, how do you create a multi signature contract that has uh, a meat space governance aspect to it that can survive three hundred years? You know, because uh, you know a, a two or three just ain't going to cut it, right? Uh, <laughs> at some point, you know, uh, along the uh, the line, you know, someone's going to uh, take that and abuse that. So how do you implement strategies and uh, governance uh, over that particular wallet so that it can last uh, for a long time and maybe give it a mandate, you know, like uh, the, the way these uh, uh, charitable foundations exist today. Uh, they have a mandate to accomplish a certain thing and they hire a board and there's, you know, these directors and they vote on the stuff that they want to do and, you know, they can't just spend all of it. Uh, so, you know, you've, you've got, you've got precedent for those types of organizations, but they have been able to exist uh, relatively easily because our legal structure, you know, is, is, is very subjective and you can just go to the judge and say, well, judge, you know, this is how we think it needs to be. Uh, and obviously there's, there's no judge in Bitcoin except for the, the blockchain itself. So, actually taking the time to think about what those contracts look like, how you uh, implement them in the real world, that's something that, that fascinates me. I have absolutely no idea how to do it, uh, but I, I think that ultimately smart people will, will figure that out. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I don't think I am qualified enough to speak on behalf of, of these smart people. We'll figure it out. <laughs> same, same. Cheers. But we are both observers of the phenomena. Indeed. And I hope we, we will be around for at least 30 years more. Yeah. Yeah. I got I to gotta walk more and do some sit-ups and make sure that uh, I eat right. But yeah, I'd like to stick around for 30 years. That'd be nice. You know, before I got into Bitcoin, I used to tell people that I want to live long just to be able to see if aliens exist if we are able to invent <laughs> teleportation right. or time travel or space exploration for tourists oh i want the holodeck man that's what i want but right now i also want to see bitcoin in the right. future yeah I, I you know i i honestly i i feel like it's going to happen i think that uh i think we're on a less than 10 year timeline uh uh, you know, it, it reminds me of a quote uh, from Bill Gates, actually. He wrote a book um, when I was coming out of high school called uh, On the Road. And um, in, in the book, he, um, he said that, you know, people always overestimate what they can accomplish in one year and underestimate what they can accomplish in 10 years. Uh, it's just one of, those, one of those things about human nature. And I, and I, I feel like that is a, a very interesting lens through which to view the Bitcoin community because we always get very excited about something that's coming. And then when it, when you say 18 months, it's like, Oh my God, it's so far away. Um, and so you, you have this unrealistic expectation on the short term. Uh, but I think we also have an equally unrealistic expectation on the long term uh, in the other direction. So uh, Vlad, I think your chances of seeing this, ha this thing happen are pretty good. I'm 27 right now, so... Oh, yeah, man. I you hope I'll get to see it. For by sure. the way, I looked it up. I know that On the Road is a book by Kerouac. 
Oh, oh, shit. What did I say? I said the, road, the one by Bill Gates is called The Road Ahead. Yes. But yes, I wouldn't have known this unless I looked it up. So <laughs> I'm not a smart ass in any way. I was just curious. Hey, man, you know, you, at a certain point, you got to give me credit for having the word road in there. So there you go. <laughs> uh, I give you credit for also reading Kerouac, I guess. It was inspiring. Yeah, okay. It got stuck in there somewhere. <laughs> it's a book which inspired a whole generation to become nomads and hippies and stuff. Yes, yes. Without a doubt. Well, Vlad, it's been fun uh, chatting up uh, with you and, and, and getting to know you a little bit better. I, I'm actually glad that we did this because, uh, like, like we mentioned uh, at the beginning, I uh, had, had seen your vampire persona um, and, and hadn't, I guess, interacted with it, uh, much, but now I have, uh, uh, more, much more of a personality to, to put to the persona. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful and grateful for that. So thank you for, uh, uh, for inviting me onto, uh, your, your podcast and, and letting me, uh, dribble out all of my, uh, stream of consciousness, uh, for all of your, your listeners. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And I'll yeah. talk to you later. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Bye. Oh, wait, Jeremy. Oh, yeah, sure. J just tell the listeners how they can follow you and whatever oh. you do these days. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, if, you, if you don't uh, follow me, the only social media that I'm on really is Twitter. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll obviously post out links to this. It's, uh, my handle is Jeremy, but I've got a whole bunch of underscores in front of it. Eight, to be precise, if you wanted to get down to that. Uh, but uh yeah so follow me please i'll follow you back and we have conversations and we grow as people okay thank you jeremy thanks Vlad. i'll publish this in a couple of days wonderful i look forward to it okay bye